there, and welcome to Coming Back, a podcast about coming back to life after loss. On today's show, we'll talk to Vasavi Kumar, a well-known coach and personality on her recent loss of self, her arrest for assault. Also on the show today, a listener in the medical field asks how to handle death when it's part of her job, and I'll lead you in a guided visualization on meeting your grief. I'm Shelby Forsythia, an intuitive grief guide who speaks, writes, and teaches about the transformational power of grief and loss. My mom's death in 2013 set me on the path to becoming a lifelong student of grief, and I use what I learned to equip others with the knowledge to heal and remind them that they are not alone. Because even through grief, we are growing. Let's get started. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Coming Back. Thank you so much for being here. The world feels heavy lately, grief growers. I know that you've noticed it. With all of the violence and protests and mercury in retrograde, it seems like a lot of things are moving backwards. And it's incredibly easy with all of our technology and the way our news is broadcast to look out at the world and see darkness. And when you're seeing darkness on top of your own darkness, whether you've lost somebody or are going through a breakup or are dealing with some other tragic life-changing news, it can get pretty bleak. And it's hard to do what we talked about last week, which is take days one day at a time, because even one minute at a time can seem really hard. And I don't want this opener to turn into a but there's still hope speech, because while I could and we know that there is, I know what it's like to just be grieving. I can I can really easily transport myself back into that place of darkness and lack of hope or faith or trust or justice, and things just seem all bad, all bad, and all hopeless. So I won't turn into a platitude sunshine monster right now. What I want to offer you this morning uh, or whatever time you're listening, as a grief recovery specialist, as a Reiki practitioner, as an intuitive grief guide, is the advice and the wisdom this week to channel your grief, to put it somewhere, to start moving with it. Don't try to run away from it. Don't try to move above or beyond it. But pick it up with you. Put it on your back. Hold its hand and ask it to help you go somewhere. I want to give you this visualization this morning, grief grower, so just sit with me. If you're driving or walking, don't close your eyes, please. But if you're on public transit or if you're sitting, just join me today. Just take a couple of a couple of deep breaths with me. As we tune in, we're going to channel our grief today. So start with what's swirling around in your head this week. What is weighing on your heart? Is it the death of somebody you love? Somebody you had a hard time loving? How about a recent breakup? Heartache with a partner or your kids? Did you lose a pet or a job or a piece of your body or your health? Are you arguing with God? Did you have dreams or beliefs or trust shattered? Is it the general state of the world you see? What grief is coming up for you this week? And then just hold it. Yeah. Visualize it and just sit with it. Look at it. Where are you feeling grief in your body? Where does it hold you? For me, it's always my heart and my stomach. Those are very connected for me. So just notice, is your head heavy with grief? Are your shoulders, are you carrying the weight of the world? 
Is it your back? Where, where can you find that grief lives in your body? Now take this grief. See your grief in your body as a mass of energy. You can pick the color, you pick the shape, you pick the density. See it moving and hanging out with you in your body. Injustice, betrayal, shame, guilt, wrongness, judgment, abuse, depression, trauma, addiction. How does it manifest for you energetically? Yeah. Just see it. Now I want you to visualize this energy in your body, grief growers, wherever it is right now. Just shifting to the left side of your body. The whole left side of your body. All of this darkness and this weight and this swirling awfulness and this heartbreak is all moving to the left side of your body. It might feel heavier to you. It's sweeping down your arms and into your hand. And I want you to watch as it pours out of your body from your fingertips. Just let it pour. Let all of this grief just pour out of the left side of you. There it goes. You are watching your grief leave your physical body. Now this grief is still here. It's still in your personal space. It's moving right beside you. It is reshaping and reforming because it's not in your physical space anymore. It's recalibrating itself to a new form. It's turning into a person, and that person is standing right next to you. This is your grief standing next to you. I want you to take a deep breath and turn and face it. What does your grief personified look like? Is it a monster? Is it part animal? Is it someone you know? Is it a really scary depiction of you? Is it formless and featureless? Look at that grief person and really examine it next to you. Now that it's outside of your physical body, you have a really good chance to look at your grief. What does your grief look like? Now I want you to imagine a cord running from your heart to the heart of your grief person. It is glowing gold and white and bright and it's very, very strong. And neither you or your grief are resisting being attached to it. It's there. It's just there. And it's connecting both of you today, transferring energy between you. I want you to feel this cord in your heart space. If you're on public transit or if you're sitting with your eyes closed, I want you to put your hand over your heart. If you're driving or walking, just imagine your hand there as a presence for me. Now with your free hand, I want you to place your free hand over the heart of your grief. Again, no resistance from your grief here. Your hands are now the cord running between you. The connection and the energy between you and your grief is all you. And there is, there is no pain here, just connection. Look your grief in the eyes. 
Look at this monster, look at this animal, look at this demon, look at this personified self, look at this formless shape of grief in the eyes. Take it in. Breathe. Yeah. Breathe. Then say, Hi, grief. I see you. I know you. I'm here. Hi, grief. I see you. I know you. I'm here. Yeah, how does that feel? Is it weird? It's probably weird. (laughs) Is it surprisingly pleasant? For you to acknowledge your grief, is it uncomfortable? Does it matter to you? What does this interaction feel like? Hi, grief. I see you. I know you. I'm here. Now bringing your hands to your sides, the cord returns, the cord remains between you and your grief. You're still connected through that heart cord, and it's still glowing bright for you. Ask your grief, I'm here. What would you like to say? I'm here. What would you like to say? And then listen for an answer. If your grief doesn't respond right away, know that for today, being seen by you is enough. But if it does answer, take note. What message is your grief trying to tell you today? What has it been waiting to say? What does it need from you or your home or the world What does the heart of your grief want you to know? Whenever you've received your message from grief, say thank you, grief. I love you. Thank you, grief. I love you. And with these words, the cord between you And your grief just dissolves away, just dissolves away into thin air. Take one last look at your grief today and let it dissolve along with the cord. We know intuitively and realistically that grief is not gone for good. But your grief has relayed its message well and done its job today. Again, if you received no message Mentally thank your grief for the opportunity to get to meet it. And just let that cord and that grief dissolve. Now with both of your hands over your own heart, say hi there. I see you. I love you. I'm here. You can use your name if you want. Hi, heart. I see you. I love you. I'm here. And just... Just breathe. With that for a moment, breathe with yourself being there for yourself. Breathe for everything that you've accomplished in this space today all of the energy you've deliberately focused on your pain and your grief. You've done a phenomenal job. Now slowly I want you to start bringing motion to your fingers and toes, up to your knees and your hips, just like you would 
coming back from Shavasana at the end of a yoga class, up through your stomach, your heart, your chest and shoulders, your neck and head. If you haven't already, start to move your fingers and hands. And when you're ready, bring that energy into your eyes. Open them softly and gently. You are back to the world. I am so proud of you, my grief grower. You have just traveled with me today to meet your grief. How cool was that? Now would be a great time to write down or take note of the message you received during our mini session. Use it to guide you through next steps if you feel you need to take any action. Things like finding a therapist or buying a journal, taking a walk, writing a song, telling a friend. Whatever your grief has told you it wants or needs to say to you. Thank you for doing this visualization with me today, grief growers. This is just another free tool that I needed to share this week that you can come back to over and over and over again to just hit pause on the madness and the darkness that grief throws us into. And we can actually, through this visualization, make grief into an entity that we can meet and interact with. It is a part of us. Grief is a part of us, but moving its energy outside of our physical bodies and walking alongside it, seeing it and touching it instead of just allowing it to consume us and to take over is where we can really make informed and grounded choices about what we'd like to do next for ourselves. We can use it to ask ourselves, what do I really need and want in this moment? I interact with my grief self a lot. If you'd like to see one example of the aftermath of me interacting with my grief self, you can search Shelby Forsythia on YouTube and find the video called We Are Not Alone. And you can also find a link for this in the show notes. This is a song that I wrote after the 2016 election results. And as a woman, as a person who identifies as queer and dates mostly women, I was very scared. I was terribly scared of what my future was going to look like. Grief was coming up big time. Grief took me over. And then I did this exercise where I met grief in my own way. And I found that these words to this song kept coming to me and that I needed to sing my truth in this moment. So I did. And I ended up recording it. And every time I watch it, I tear up because I know that in that moment, that is my truth. That is what my grief and that is what my heart ultimately wanted to say. A lot of people think that channeling your grief means taking to the streets or writing a viral op-ed piece or going door to door getting signatures for a cause. A lot of other people think channeling your grief means starting a charity or launching a business or writing a bestseller. But sometimes, actually most of the time, channeling your grief means allowing it to come with you and sit with you and sometimes even inform your actions in the everyday. I want you to be a witness to your own pain this week, grief growers. I want you to see yourself and your loved ones and the rest of the world hurting. Look at you. Look at them. Look at us. Look at all of us. Don't try to run away. Don't try to move ahead or above or beyond where you are right now, this moment. Pick us up. Pick you up. Take all of this pain and this heartache with you. Listen to it. It's a part of you. Grief comes to us and inhabits us and takes us over because it has something to say. This week and with this guided visualization that you can always come back to, I challenge you to listen. My heart is with you this week through the turmoil of the world. And whatever you're going through, 
whatever griefs you're going through in your personal life. Just like the song I wrote says, we are not alone. I love you. Up next, a listener question about seeing death a lot at work. Dear Shelby, I'm a 29-year-old woman working as an ER nurse in a major hospital. I started here six months ago after being an EMT for a year, and I really feel like being in the medical field is my passion. I love working in service of others and knowing what to do when people are at their worst. I'm good at my job, and I like the rest of the nurses and doctors I work with. Lately, I've started really feeling the fact that death is a part of my job. I work at a wonderful hospital, but like any other medical facility, sometimes we lose patients, or patients are too far gone by the time they come to us. I've seen girls my age who were in car accidents die on the table. I've seen kids die, too. Watching their families fall apart when we deliver the news still haunts me, and I dream of them a lot. I guess my question is, how do I deal with death when it's a part of my job? I can't ignore it, especially now that it's creeping into the subconscious world of my dreams. I can't break down and cry every single time we lose a patient. Some of my coworkers who have been here longer than me seem so good at handling it, like it doesn't even phase them anymore. How do I get to that place? Rena. Hi, Rena. I can't tell you how many times I've heard this question or seen this sentiment posted online from nurses and EMTs and firefighters and police officers and veterinarians and zookeepers and disaster relief workers. Any profession that deals with living, breathing beings experiences death as a part of their job. So thank you for being one of the brave and skilled people who works with life and death every day. You sound like you're really passionate about it and want to stay in it. Unfortunately, the medical field is severely understaffed and still operates from this westernized military mindset, which is suck it up, the next patient is waiting. There's not a lot of reverence for death because there isn't time or capacity or like emotional bandwidth to when there's so much else going on. And there's this mentality that if doctors and nurses and medical professionals, quote unquote, paused to feel, they might miss out on saving somebody. But from a quick Google search that I did of how nurses handle death, I read some articles about how not acknowledging feelings of sadness or mourning patients who die can have negative physical and emotional consequences for you and can even lead to burnout, especially somewhere as tense and as heavy as the ER. So how do you get to a place where you can feel and still do your job? That sounds like the nature of your question. So I've got two things for you. First, at work and outside of yourself, I would ask for help. You say that some of your coworkers who have been doing this longer than you have are are really good at handling death. So ask them what they do. Talk to them about how they decompress from hard days. If they say, I suck it up, or I don't let it touch me, or anything else that sounds remotely unemotional, move on to the next coworker. You're looking for somebody who can pause to feel at work. You're looking for somebody You're looking for somebody who acknowledges both your patient's humanity and your own. So your patient's humanity and the fact that they have just died, but your own humanity and in, in that that is a sad and sometimes difficult experience to have. If you don't have any luck with your coworkers or are looking for more perspectives outside of yourself, I would get in touch with the hospital chaplain or a palliative care department if you have one. Um, they might have programs for internal staff available to you that you're not aware of or may have access to resources outside the hospital that are free or reduced cost. I know that the grief recovery method, which is the method that I'm trained in, is available at a couple of hospitals across the country to patients and their families, uh, but as well as internal staff who are affected by loss. You could also try seeing a therapist on one of your days off. And you take care of and listen to the griefs of so many people. It only it only makes sense that you seek help outside of yourself so that someone else can take care of and listen to your grief as well. Um, the last thing I'll recommend outside of yourself is to find and join a group online for nurses or for medical professionals. Facebook groups are always the first thing that pop into my brain, but I'm sure there are others out there too. And 
being able to voice your story or voice a really hard day or voice some grief or some dreams or things that you're having in a form of people who get it and, and are in the same line of work that you are can do wonders for your heart. You can't and shouldn't have to internalize all of your bad days. So the second thing I want to offer you is for yourself, I would prioritize death in your life. It's a weird thing to say out loud, and I'm not even sure that I'm saying this correctly, but to prioritize death is to prioritize the life of another human being. And for someone who sees death as much as you do, that's really, really important. And prioritizing death in practice looks like creating rituals. So small, personal, brief rituals that mean something to you and honor the person you lost. I don't know if you're religious, but this might be saying like a small prayer or a blessing in your head when a patient dies. It might be going home and writing about your experience in a private journal. So you literally create a written container to hold the lives and honor the lives of your patients. It might even be taking 60 seconds to cry, you know, and just making that really important eye contact with your medical team after a death, especially if you are all involved in some way. You could attend a funeral or a memorial service for the patient you lost. You could post up an obituary in a public space. These are all ideas for prioritizing death on a personal level for you to make sure that that your patients are honored, but also that you're honored as someone who has served them in the last moments of their life. You need to acknowledge regularly that death is a part of your job and that you and your patients are human beings with emotions. Sometimes looking at death is hard, Rena. It just is. In hospitals especially, death can be tragic or poorly timed or simply just not fair. You could feel sadness or guilt or numbness or relief when a patient dies, and it all depends on the day, right? But in doing the work that you do, you sign up to have an intimate relationship with death. It's kind of a price of admission, so kind of like I said in the guided visualization earlier, don't don't try to push it away or stuff it simply because there's not enough time or you feel like you don't have enough time or bandwidth to acknowledge it. You are human and you acknowledge death and deal with death by seeing and showing that the people you take care of are human too. You are asking all the right questions, Rena. Good luck. Please submit your question for the show by leaving a voicemail or texting 312-725-3043 or emailing shelby at shelbyforsythia.com. You can always find both these contacts in the show notes. Next, we'll talk to Vasavi Kumar about her recent loss of control and loss of self when she was arrested for assaulting her partner. Vasavi Kumar is often described as your kick-in-the-pants guide and route to your desired destination. She is a licensed social worker, special education teacher, and a certified coach. Vasavi holds dual master's degrees in special education from Hofstra University and social work from Columbia University. She's a pro at attracting media and works with her clients to create and go after opportunities that are aligned with their brand values. She's been featured in the Wall Street Journal, was a regular on NBC's Kansas City Live as the Keeping It Real guru, and was on VH1's Basketball Wives, where she coached one of the main stars of the show. She truly believes that with impeccable character, work ethic, and unwavering values, you can do, be, and have anything you want. Well, Vasavi, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I want to start off how we always start off our interviews and ask you to share your lost story with us. Thanks for having me on, Shelby. So I want to start off, you know, with the with the loss story being something that your listeners may not be expecting, but it really it, it's actually something that happened recently, as of recent as March of this year, um, and it would be a loss of self, loss of self. Um, on March twelfth, I got arrested, and uh, yeah, I got arrested for assault, um, and I went to jail for a whopping eighteen hours. I was wrong, 100%. I was in the wrong. I, I, I was rightfully arrested. And um, it was the first time and the last time that I will ever be going to jail. But it was definitely not only a loss of self, but a loss of control, um, something which I try to hold on for dear life, which is control, which is an illusion. And that was probably my greatest 
lost story. It, it, it's not a person that I lost. It's not a, it's not a thing. It really was my sense of self. Um, because up until that point, you know, here I was, you know, Ivy league graduate, double master, successful business, you know, good daughter, uh, former wife, just kind of always doing things by the book. And I got in trouble because I was wrong and I, and I lost control of my anger and I assaulted, um, someone very close to me. It, it's, it's my partner actually my current partner, like right now, actually, that I'm with. And I, I got angry and I assaulted him. And that is what happened. That is absolutely incredible. Not was <laughs> what I was expecting. I'll tell the listeners right now that Vasavi's loss was kept under wraps until this very moment. So this is all new to me as well. Yes. I, I'm really curious because you seem so prepared already to, to identify this as a loss of self and a loss of control, which makes me wonder, have you lost yourself and or any element of control in the past before? Like, have you felt this feeling? And is that why you were able to quickly identify it? Or are you just familiar with the concept of loss in general? I'm very familiar with the concept of loss since the time I was a child. I, I know what it's like to, you know, not have a mother around all the time. My mom was alive, I mean, is alive, knock on wood, and she, but, but, but she was a working mother. I didn't have my mom growing up. I didn't. I mean, she was, she, she, she was at work. She's a doctor. So, you know, it's not like she was out gallivanting, you know, painting the town red. But as a child, I did not have her physically there, right? Like, I didn't come home to warm baked cookies at all. I came home to a babysitter. You know what I mean? So I didn't, I I had that loss of that uh, steady mother figure. I grew up in a family of chaos. So there was always that loss of control from a very young age. And so I literally recreated my childhood as an adult, which is why I got arrested. So I know this feeling very well. That's why I'm so aware of it. That's why I don't blame anyone for it. That's why I've taken full responsibility for it. Cause it's like, oh, well, no wonder this happened. I mean, just look at my 35 years of, you know, living on this planet. Look at how I was raised to look at my environment that I grew up in. This is not a parent bashing interview. I love my parents very much. I'm, I'm still very close to them, but you know, you know, they did the best they could with what they had as well. But there are, were consequences to the way I was raised. You know, um, I saw, you know, I was hit as a child growing up. Like, that was normal in our culture. You know, like, I, I was smacked in public. I mean, so so just just hitting in general was, like, very normal. And by the way, I, I've never hit anybody in my life up until what happened in March. But, you know, it was, this is so predictable for me. You know what I mean? It was so predictable that I swear to God, when I got arrested, it was at like 9.35 or like 10 o'clock at night on a Sunday. I had just come back from a week's trip in Costa Rica, by the way. I had landed from Costa Rica the night before. And when I got arrested, Shelby, it was the most, it was, it, there was such a washing of peace over me. It was almost like, oh my God, I can finally surrender. I don't have to be in control. Wow. It, Tell me more about that. It was, it's it, it's so crazy. I mean, we were literally on the side of the street and there were four cops and my boyfriend and, you know, he told his side of the story. I told mine and the cop came over to me and he goes, uh, can you hand me your phone? And I was like, yeah, sure. And then he took both hands, put them behind me and he arrested me. And I, and I didn't even freak out. I didn't even freak out. And I said, okay, I understand. And I said to my boyfriend, please take care of Lainey, who's my dog. That's all, you know, that, that, that was my number one concern was like, please just take care of the dog while I'm gone. I didn't know how long you know, I'd be gone for, I, I, you know, I don't know how this stuff works. So, but there was such a level of peace because God, I can't, I can't even explain it. It was almost like all the fighting stopped in that moment. All the yelling stopped in that moment. All the anger stopped in that moment, because at that point it was like, it was done. It was done. Like, like there was someone bigger than me, you know, someone with more authority than me that said, basically, no, you're going to be reprimanded for this behavior. And I kind of just, I don't know, I kind of just submitted. I just submitted. I, were you? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, were you carrying your past with you in that moment? Like, were you literally surrendering 35 years in that moment? That's a, such a good question. No one's ever asked me that. Well, no one actually, you know, not a lot of people know about this, but I was surrendering Yes. Yes. That, I mean, yes, is the only way I can, I mean, it was 35 years of control, 35 years of anger, 35 years of, you know, maybe letting my anger get the best of me, but never really having to pay any full consequences for it, you know, because the people in my life love me and they would just take it from me, you know? And in that moment is like, oh, I'm caught. I can no longer get away with this crap. You know what I mean? And so I got what I deserved. I, 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 I take responsibility for things to a fault. So, you know, there, there, I, I am not saying my boyfriend at all is perfect in any of this, but I, I'm the one that got taken because 
under those principles of domestic violence, I was the one that, you know, did commit a crime. It was, it was a, the most, I don't want to say peaceful, but like when you're in a holding cell with other people who are coming in late at night, I mean, I did not go to sleep at all. Um, and it's freezing inside jail. I don't know if you've, I, I don't think you've ever been, but it's freezing inside there and it's like cold and they make you change into your, the outfits and the, and the, all, you know, and the, and the ugly shoes. And it's like, there's nothing I can do at that point. And so all the control that I just been trying to control the relationship, trying to control myself, trying to control life, trying to control everything personally, trying to control being perfect all the time. I was no different than anybody in there. And I kind of, I have to be honest, that's kind of a relief for me. It, it was actually a relief for me for even those 18 hours. Here I am, Ivy League educated, babe, you know, in business for seven years. I've been featured here. I've been featured there. Nobody gives a crap when you're in jail, okay? And I was no different than anybody else. And that was actually, that was actually a very good feeling for me. Like, okay, I don't, I can't pretend in here. I, I have to face the fact that I screwed up. I messed up. Vasavi Kumar messed up. It was a very humbling 18 hours for me. And it has carried on. Yeah. It's just incredible. And it sounds like you're still in the process of decompressing. But I want to rewind for like two seconds. I want to take you back to the phrase I heard this come out of your mouth regarding your parents. You said they did the best they could with what they had. And I want to I want to talk about what that phrase means to you because this comes up so often in in households where physical violence is a thing, where emotional violence is a thing, where sexual violence is a thing. And and there's something I talked about on a previous episode about um, generational grief that gets passed down through timelines, not only because of what we're teaching each other, but the energy that gets passed down, the unspoken knowledge of control, not control, and violence and not violence and all these things like that. So I want to talk about the phrase they did the best they could with what they had. Has that ever been comforting to you? Do you believe that about yourself? I don't. It's funny. Wow, that's why wow, you asked really good questions. Thank uh, you. I don't believe. <laughs> I don't believe that about myself. I actually hold myself to a much higher standard. That's funny that you say that because now that I'm thinking about it, I don't say that about myself. I don't say, "Well, I did the best I could with what I had." I'm like, "No, I can do better." And so I have learned a lot of compassion for myself. Um, you know, because I'm like, I'm 35. I don't feel like beating myself up anymore. So I, I have become much kinder to myself, surprisingly, uh, throughout all of this. And with my parents, what I mean by that is they're immigrants, and I'm not making excuses. I'm just telling you the facts. They're immigrants. They've come from India in 1974, wanting a better life for their kids. Very different culture, very different mindset. You know, my mom grew up kind of poor. My dad grew up in a little bit of a dramatic, chaotic household, you know, his father wasn't a really great father, you know, and so they brought to the table as parents with whatever they got as kids, right? Mm -hmm. So how can I expect them to be any better than what they were given unless they had this heightened sense of self-awareness that is like, huh, I think I should look at my parenting style. No, when you're, you know, trying to raise two kids and you are an immigrant in this country and you are trying to just make ends meet, you're not thinking about how to become a better parent. I'm sorry, you're not. You're trying to get to work, come back and pay the bills and raise two daughters, right? My sister and I to become good Indian girls. Do you know what I mean? And yes. so they did the best they could with what they had. So I don't, I, I can sit and I can blame them all I want. And then I just end up getting really frustrated because I cannot change the past and I cannot change what happened. And I most definitely cannot change them. It sounds like you're a person who is absolutely refusing to live in the past. I refuse. I absolutely refuse. And by the way, I do go to therapy every week. And of course, we, you know, visit stuff from the past, but I always want to look at, well, what can I do about it now? Because there is, I feel so powerless when I sit. I do talk about the past. Don't get me wrong, but I feel powerless sitting and dwelling in it. I use the past as a, as a tool to help me understand where I'm at right now. I do not use it as well. See, it's because mom said this, that I do this. That could be true. Okay. Mm -hmm. But what am I going to do about it now as a grown adult? Do you know what I'm saying? Yes. So I, I, I don't like sitting in the past. Yes, very good observation. Mm. Um, fast forwarding a little bit now, I want to talk to you about those 18 hours. And you, you kind of got onto a miniature um, runaway with, I am no different than, no better than anybody that I'm sitting next to. I want to know, how was this humbling for you? How was this leveling as a human experience? I kind of want to talk about like 
Brene Brown calls it day two. You can't skip Mm -hmm. day two, which is the darkness of analyzing the experience that you're having and just kind of sitting in that depth of, oh shit, this is what just happened. Um, Mm -hmm. Sit there with me for a minute. Tell me what that's like. Well, it's, um, it's funny because the ego part of me was sitting there and looking at, you know, men coming in for, you know, drunk driving or abuse and, and women coming in with DWIs. And I'm sitting there being like, what the hell? I don't belong here. Look at these people, quote unquote, these people, look at these people. Right. And so it's funny because it's funny who we put ourselves above or who we put ourselves below. And in that moment, I was like, oh my God, I'm like, what am I doing in here? You know what I mean? And I I knew why the hell I was in there. You know what I mean? But it, as time went on, I was, it it got, it gave me a lot of time to think because we have 18 hours with no television, no computer, no phone, no one to really talk to except the other inmates, you know, it just had me really think about myself more than anything and not focus so much on anybody else and be like, wait a minute, the only person I can control and I have any control over is myself. I have found in business and in, in, in our personal lives, whenever we idolize somebody or we put ourselves subordinate to somebody, you know, that's just not a good, healthy place to be because it's this constant flipping of better than, less than versus than just focusing on yourself. And I have never really been anyone to judge and be like, oh, I'm better than you. Like, no, not at all. But in that moment, I could feel that part of me flare up. Like that part of me, I, I think that part of me is is within everybody. We we all have that. We all have that. Well, I'm better than this person, or I'm not as good enough as this person, whatever. But that that feeling was flared up like it, for those for that time that I was there. Not the entire time. It was like I don't belong here. Like I'm so much better than these people. I cannot. I mean, look at these people. They're such trash. These are the things that I'm saying to myself, right? And so what I what the higher self part of me came in. I am very lucky. I don't stay too long in ego. The higher self came in and said, wait a minute, as long as you're sitting here comparing yourself and making yourself better than the other person or less than, you're never going to be able to focus on yourself. So let's focus on you, Vasavi. Like literally this is the conversation in my head. And so, you know, I stopped focusing on everybody else. I don't care if this person has a DWI. I don't know her story. She could be, you know what I mean? Drunk because she just found out her husband cheated on her. Who knows? Mm -hmm. I don't know. And I don't care. It's not my problem. And even if we're looking at in business, Shelby, I'm sure you know this. It's so easy to compare ourselves to people online, to mm-hmm. online gurus mm-hmm. and this person. and be like, Look at this person has these many followers. Who cares? Do you know what I mean? It's like it just really I got so clear, so clear, which is why I do not compare myself at all in business to other people. And I don't think I've ever compared myself in business, but if there was ever any doubt that, you know, I was going to start doing that, I, I, I stopped because in that moment, you know, for those 18 hours, I had to focus on myself for those, the, um, uh, the amount of time that I was there. I, you know, because I could either sit and compare myself to everybody else and avoid looking at myself or I could really spend that time to speculate as to what the hell I was doing in mm-hmm. there. Like, how did I get here? You know what I mean? So like, so like that was the main question. Like, how did I freaking get, how did I get here? It wasn't the I, like the higher self Vasavi. It was the broken, ego, codependent, needy, angry, wounded child Vasavi that, uh, that landed herself in jail. That's who that was. Mm-hmm. And I, 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 I am very clear about that distinction because the higher self philosophy would not have landed herself there at all. But I do believe that everything happens for a reason. I do. And I, and I am grateful for that experience that I went through. I'm taking a lot of notes as I'm talking to you because you have a lot of you highlight talking points as you speak, which is so phenomenal. I have um, control and comparison underlined right now. I said they're sisters, but when we lose control, we stop comparing. I want to know, and I just get chills as I say that because this is like a divine download moment happening. What brings you to a place where you lose control? Oh, that's so, okay. That's so great. I, um, so in the moment, okay. So I, I, I will take you guys back into the actual assault. All right. What triggered the assault was the feeling of you are going to leave me and you don't love me and I don't matter. And I am completely irrelevant. It was, it's the same feeling that I've had since I was a kid, which is why I'm going through EMDR, which yes. if your listeners uh-huh. don't know. Yeah. So I'm going through EMDR. But with let my them know what that is. Cause I'm, I'm familiar, but they may not be. 
So I, I, to be honest, I don't know the um, acronym, but it is, oh, sorry, it, it's eye movement desensitization and reprocessing therapy, okay? Yeah. And so um, I'm doing that with my therapist where we're highlighting like one or two key events in my childhood and looking at what I meant, what I made it mean, right? So there's this one moment in my, like as, as early as three years old that I remember where I felt so invisible and I felt so irrelevant, with my mother. Okay. And so we're doing EMDR on that, basically tapping into different parts of the brain to help you desensitize over painful events that have happened in the past. And so in that moment that had me lose control, I would say the number one thing that makes me lose control is whenever I feel that I have become irrelevant or, or I am not being seen and I'm not being heard. Um, because it, yeah, that's some deep, that's some deep crap. That is some, it is, it, it, it is some deep crap. It, it is crap. I will tell you that. And, uh, but it has controlled my life and it controlled my life up until I got, you know, I, I went to jail. I mean, honestly, that is why I lost control because I, in that moment with my boyfriend felt like he did not see me, uh, like really see me. He was not hearing me. He did not give a crap about me. And so I hit him with a broomstick. That's what I did. That's the truth. I mean, I've never talked about this out loud. Um, I, I hit him with a broomstick, not on the face, on the arm, but multiple times. And then I called the police and then I went to jail, which I deserved. But it was, you know, it was triggered by the fact that I really thought that you don't give a crap about me and I've done so much for you. You tattled on yourself? I t- I'm an idiot, okay? I, I called the cops thinking I was all cool. I'm like, I'm going to get the cops to arrest you. I mean, I was out of control. Wow. My anger is, is, is an animal. I called the cops. They came, and I was for sure that he was going to go to jail. But you know what? I mean, I was wrong. I mean, I, I mean, honestly, the truth will always win, and I lost. Why, you know like, why I mean? was he going to jail? In your I, mind, I was why just, was he going to jail? I don't know because I I was completely taken over by my anger that I was, you know, when you're that angry, you are so irrational. You know what I mean? So I didn't, I mean, in my mind, I was like, I was wronged. He doesn't love me. And so I'm going to spin it in a way that you're wrong. And like, it was, it was literally, it was like three-year-old Vasavi trying to be seen and heard. The judge and the jury for your spirit in that moment. Yeah. Oh my God. Yes. The judge and the jury though that yes. And I can sit and be like, they were racist and they were this and they were that. But no, I hit another human being and I have forgiven myself for that. He has forgiven me for that. Um, but I, when I had to sit and really think about, you know, in the, in the following weeks, you know, because we had a protective order, so I couldn't even contact him. I had a lot of time to think about, holy crap, I hit another human being. I, I, I abused another human being. And then I, I said, I abused myself in the process. You know what I mean? Like, yes. it's not just about him. I hurt myself in the process. And so it's been a lot of rebuilding. It's been a lot of rebuilding internally for me. So, I have a question for you. Um, please. I mean, this is an interview. So of course I have millions of questions for you, but um, <laughs> you, you just, you literally said, I hit another human being. You have to sit, sit there with that thought. Are you scared of yourself? I am so terrified of my anger. I am so terrified of my anger, which is why I'm so excited for my anger management course, because my anger has been my my weakness. Um, you won't see it if you're a client or you won't see it if you're a friend. You'll see it if you're my intimate partner. You know, I have one failed marriage. I was I was with a I was with a lovely man for 10 years um, and we were married for up until almost three. And then I left him. And even with my partner now, um, you know, great guy. You know, I mean, we all have our downfalls or whatever, but it was the same crap over again. Same stuff within my marriage with him, um, with my, with my current partner. And intimacy is scary for me. Intimacy is very, very scary for me. And I'm working on it. You know, that's all I can say. I'm not perfect. That's why I don't do relationship advice for people, you know, but I actually, (laughs) I actually have really good relationship advice. You know what I mean? Like, isn't that funny that, um, I can, I can, I, I, I know what great communication is. I, I communicate very, very well, but in an intimate partnership, when those wounds are not healed, and when you're still operating from child, broken child, wounded child, it's, it's going to ruin your relationships. Mm-hmm. It is. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's where I'm at right now. Um, I am afraid of my anger. Um, I've worked very hard, like weekly therapy, books, you know, listening, meditation, breathing, doing everything I can. And I feel more in control of my anger than I've ever felt before. Um, but there's obviously more to learn. You know, there, there is so much to learn about myself, uh, about ourselves. So that's where I'm at right now. 
So what was what was the first step back for you? The first step for me, actually, and it's always, this is not just with the jail, my the first step always for me to actually fix something or to or to move forward is to accept 100% responsibility. That is my number one, first and foremost, even before the comparison is like, I did this. I did this. I created this. I am here because of what I did. That is the best way for me to move forward. Because once I know that I did it, I is the only thing that I have control over. You're talking to someone who likes control, right? And so instead of trying to control my boyfriend or what my parents think or the people in jail or the officers or the whatever, I can only control Vasavi and that's it. And so that's why my first step always in any area of life is to accept responsibility that I did this, that my life right now is as a, is a, is a result of the series of decisions and actions that I have taken throughout the course of my life. I did this. That's brilliant. And this falls into a category of what I like to call this came up in episode four for me is the griefs that we create or the losses that we create in our lives, because there are losses we do not create like death when people are, are quote unquote taken from us. Um, but then there are losses we create in our lives, whether it's actions we take ourselves or career shifts that we choose to make or breakups that we choose to start putting into motion, um, these actions and plans. And, and you're right that it is the first step really is to take 100% responsibility, not even necessarily for what has happened, but for your response to it, for the fact that it is happening in your life and your emotions, your mental state, your physical state in relation to everything that's happened. I want to jump into concrete resources. I know you um, pointed out directly EMDR as something that is helping you come back from this loss, but are there any specific authors, speakers, coaches, whoever that that is helping you come back in this process as well? I would say, you know, you would have to go searching for this. This is not a direct resource, but I will say this. If you need therapy, there's nothing wrong with that. Okay. And so find yourself a therapist, um, especially if you are in the profession of giving to other people, you have to ask yourself who is giving to you, um, who is listening to you. So I would definitely say, go and seek out a therapist, go to psychologytoday.com and find someone in your area. That you can, I mean, I, I'm actually a licensed social worker, oddly enough. You know what I mean? So it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's funny. Um, it's not funny at all, actually. It makes total sense. But um, I would say go to psychologytoday.com, find yourself a therapist. You know, if you suffer from anger, you know, then I would say there are probably local organizations that offer at a, you know, at a, at a, at a very reasonable price anger management courses. Um, the other thing, I had a book that I, and it, it will come back to me. It's all about, you know, how the fact that our past, like we, we don't have to take so much responsibility. And the, and the name of the book is called It Didn't Start With You by Mark Wolin, W-O-L-Y-N-N. And it just talks about how inherited family trauma shapes who we are and how to end the cycle. Oh, I have to read that. I'm so excited. Oh my God. I know. I know. I'm not. It didn't start with you. It, I'm underlining it, this it right did, now. It didn't start with you, especially if you're one of those people that takes full responsibility like I do. See, I'm all about taking responsibility, but there is a point where it's to a fault. Yes. Yes. You take the weight, you take the weight, you take the weight, you take yeah. the weight. And you're like, wait a minute, when do I get to be resentful? When do I get to be, you know, pissed that this is my life? When do I get to be, you know, there's some justification in like, hey, I didn't ask for this. I didn't ask for this story. I didn't ask for these parents. I didn't ask for this culture. I didn't ask for this life. Uh, And and energetically, spiritually, you know, the universe might say different, but there's some point where I I think it's personally healthy to sometimes just shake our fist at the sky. You know, and and I think that by the way, like just because you realize that you've inherited a lot of family trauma does not mean that you're being a victim. And so I want, so you can, you can be a victim of something, but not be a victim to it. Does that make sense? Like, like, you know, you recognition is not victimization. I love it. Yes. Yes, exactly. Yes, exactly. So recognizing it doesn't make you a victim. And, and I have had to learn that I've had to learn that I'm going to be honest that it's like, wow, I did grow up in a house that's really chaotic. And like, you know, if I try to talk about it with my mom, she gets really defensive. And then I learned, don't talk about this with her. That's why you have a therapist, right? And then also understanding who to talk to, right? Do not try to get water from a stone. You're never going to get it. And so having the right people to talk to, if you know your mom is extremely defensive and she is not one to apologize, then what are you doing telling her all the time about how you feel? Because you have, that's where you have to let go and say some people will never change. And then, and then at that point, you have to change yourself. Mm. Parents are just people. Our parents are just people. And I've had to learn that she's just a person. 
She's a person and it's not her job to soothe my wounds anymore. It's not her job. That's actually a very liberating feeling, Shelby. I got to be honest. It is to relieve your parents of having to get everything right. And then conversely, relieving yourself of having to get everything right on your end as well. Yeah. Yes. Holy crap. That, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Especially, and I'll tell, you know, this is coming up for me lately as someone who has experienced loss of a parent. There's that from beyond the grave of they still couldn't get anything right because they died. Um, And that's Mm. a whole other battle that you have to face spiritually. But there has been a lot of releasing for me on a personal level lately of my mom was a person. And that still falls into place with what I asked you earlier about the best they could with what they had. That that recognition of humanity in these people who were supposed to be everything for us. Um, mm-hmm. It's interesting holding those two pictures in your mind at the same time, parent picture and human picture. I want to talk about your identity, who you were then or before the assault and who you are now and kind of how you incorporate the assault, your anger, this this need for control, also with your identity as a major public figure, as a social worker, as a daughter, as an Ivy League graduate, like how do you how do you incorporate this assault into your life now? What's different? You know, I got to be honest with you. Um, of course, um, before the assault, I would say I was very addicted to my story. The fact that I'm not lovable, the fact that I'm not attractive, the fact that, you know, you don't care about me, the fact that I'm irrelevant, the fact that I'm invisible, you know, that story that is so ingrained in my DNA. Okay. I was so addicted to that story because I wanted to be right. I wanted to be right that I wasn't lovable, right? Like we're always looking for evidence as to why we can be right about our story. And that was my story. Um, and does it still show up? Absolutely. But that's who I was before. Who I am now, I'm going to be honest because it, this just happened in March. I'm a lot quieter internally. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm a lot quieter. I have a lot better boundaries with others and myself. I have boundaries with myself. Like, you know, I mean, we, I, I mean, here we are talking about boundaries with other people, but you know, I have boundaries with myself, how I allow myself to talk to myself. Right. Like, I don't know if that makes sense. Like I yes. won't allow myself to, to treat myself in a certain way. So I have, I have better boundaries within myself for myself, how I treat myself. You know, uh, we always think about boundaries in terms of external, like, oh, I won't let so-and-so talk to me this way. Okay. Are you going to talk to yourself that way though? You know? So, um, I'm, yeah. So, you know, screw other people. No offense. You know what I mean? You got to start with yourself. So I'm expecting kindness from the world. I'm expecting acceptance from the world, but I got to give it to myself. And so that's where I'm at right now is that giving myself what I want from everybody else, especially as it, as it pertains to intimate relationships. I'm also kind of sad, you know, I, I, you know, I am my moments of sadness. I do. I mean, I'm, I cry like once a day for sure. It's, it's a lot of decompressing, letting go in my body from everything that's happened. You know, that's a lot of anxiety, you know, having been arrested, having to go to court multiple times, having to pay $3,000 in bail, you know, $5,000 in lawyer fees, all, you know, all out of pocket, which is fine. I had the money to pay it, not a big deal, but I just going through that process, not knowing what's going to happen, having to deal with the disapproval of my parents because I'm still with my boyfriend. You know, there's a lot. There's a lot. Okay. There's, there's a lot. And, and also still running a business and also providing for other people emotionally and, and being a resource and getting paid for it. And also making sure I'm not ruining my credibility. And now I don't even care, quite frankly. It's like, okay, if, if you can't see past what I'm telling you and you don't want to work with me, that's fine. You know, like that's Isn't where that I'm at. Isn't that so fun? <laughs> <laughs> to come to a place where you're like, Fuck it. <laughs> I, oh my god, I'm so I'm glad you said the F word. Yeah, no, I, I'm totally okay. Good. As, as long as we're dropping the F bomb, yeah. Like I did you share right ahead. I shared with my list about not the details of what happened. I shared that I got arrested. I shared that I got dismissed, and um, you know I always market to my list, and I'm kind of sharing great things with them. And um, no one has taken me up. Not no one. It's been, it's been, you know, business has been a little slower than usual. It's just picking back up because I have a lot of podcast interviews that have just gone out. And so mm. I get all my business from, from podcasts, surprisingly. Oh, that's um, beautiful. I love that. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's really cool. Cause I think once someone actually hears your story, they're like, oh wow, you're human, you know? Exactly. Um, but, but people on my list, I love them dearly. And I, I, I think, you know, people might be disappointed. They might be like, wait a minute, possibly I put you on a pedestal. I didn't ask you to do that. I didn't ask you to put me on a pedestal. I, I sure as hell don't put myself on my, on a pedestal, which is 
business has been slow and that's been a good thing because I've had a lot of time to self-introspect. I've been making money in very creative ways, fun ways that, that I actually enjoy. Um, I love the clients that I do work with. They are very loyal customers, I have to be honest. So where I'm at now, I was scared, you know, definitely scared. Um, I'm not as scared anymore because I think I've kind of just seen everything pan out. I, I think when I found out my case was dismissed so soon because my lawyer said it was going to take over a year and it literally got dismissed within like four months. You know what I mean? Like that for me was like, wow, wow that's mm-hmm. someone's looking out for me, you know? And so I just have ultimate faith that it's all going to work out. It's going to work out. It always does. And, and honestly, that's how I feel. I have, I have a tremendous amount of faith in something big, you know, greater than myself. And so, you know, I have my moments of doubt, but my moments of faith are higher and, and, and greater. So that's where I'm at right now. In like two sentences, I want to know, what do you tell yourself in darkness? What do you cling to? Oh my God. Girl, why do you ask these questions? <laughs> They're so good. Oh my God. Oh, back on. This is so much fun. Yes, I would love to. What do I tell myself? It'd be I. Okay, so I I gotta just tell you a little quick background. It's like it's like thirty seconds. Okay, so sure. when I was when I was a kid, and actually to this day, my parents don't call me Vasavi. They call me Vachi, Vachi, V A C H I Vachi. That's my like nickname at home. And so in moments of darkness, I say Vachi, you're gonna be okay. That's what I say to myself. I said you're gonna be okay, Vachi. I I like literally talk to myself and I say Vachi, you're gonna be okay. And, and I, do you believe it? hundred percent, hundred percent. Yeah. And, 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 and I suffer when I don't, I suffer when I don't, when I don't believe it is when I suffer the greatest. I'm much happier when, when, when I believe that everything is going to be okay. When I, when I start to freak out and start to lose my shit and start to act like a crazy woman is when I suffer and the people around me suffer the most. When my faith goes up and my belief goes up and my, and my trust is great, then I'm happier. Because you know what? I can sit and, and enjoy the hell out of my suffering, which I've done for 35 years, or I can sit and say, you know what? It's going to freaking be okay because it will be because I made it this far. I want to let people know how they can work with you, this totally radical, real human being. Where can people find you and your work? I would like to be contacted if you go to my website, vasavikumar.com forward slash focused action. I have a free training video on how to pick um, one idea and take action in less than 20 minutes. This is for folks who are very overwhelmed and just need help kind of simplifying, which is probably my, my specialty. If you love this episode and you just want to email me, just email me at vasavi at vasavikumar.com directly and say, hey, I'd love to talk to you. And then we can we can hop on the phone. I am so excited. This was 100% not what I expected at all. And I am so happy about it. Loss like this is not talked about. And that's the whole point of this podcast, not only to share resources and share stories, but to talk about things that nobody's talking about yet. And so I just so I so thank you for your your radical honesty and for coming on the show and making time to really dig into this story today. This was just awesome. Thank you, Vasavi. Well, you know, thanks for not wigging out when I when I told you this because I was going to tell you and then I said, you know, let me just surprise her with this topic. <laughs> and um, honestly, I just want to say thank you to you for for handling it so so gracefully. You know, I mean, you could have freaked out and you didn't. So I appreciate that. Excellent. Thanks so much, Vasavi. No problem, Shelby. So that's all for this episode of Coming Back. Thank you so, so much to my magnificent, radical, kick-butt guest, Vasavi Kumar, who came back by taking responsibility for her life, entering therapy and anger management, and reading the book on inherited family trauma, It Didn't Start With You. If you or someone you love is looking to break the cycle of family trauma, check out that book. You can get in touch with Vasavi and get her free 20-minute video on taking one focused action right now at vasavikumar.com, and that website is in the show notes. Be sure to join me tomorrow, August 24th, on Facebook Live at 1 o'clock Central Time. We'll be walking through today's grief visualization again and talking about what grief looks like to us. Please subscribe and tell a friend about coming back, because you never know what somebody you love is going through. As always, thank you, thank you, thank you to Mr. Eddie Goldstein, who composed our theme music. You can find me on Facebook at Shelby Forsythia, Intuitive Grief Guide, Instagram at Grief Guide Shelby Forsythia, or simply shelbyforsythia.com. 
If you'd like to leave a question or a comment for a future show, leave a voicemail or text 312-725-3043 or email me at shelby at shelbyforsythia.com subject line podcast. As always, my dear grief growers, it was beautiful sharing this space and time with you today. I see you. I am so proud of you and the work that you're doing in the world. And I love you. Because even through grief, we are growing.